Hello and welcome to the Reformers podcast for Monday the 17th of July, middle of the month already, this year is flying by. Assistant Editor Steve Withers is here. I'm awfully sorry, but I'm afraid we're going to have to occupy your house. News Editor Mark Hodgkinson. I don't want to hear anymore. Is there any more? Audio reviewer Ed Selly. I've got lunatics laughing at me from the woods. And our special guest star this week is Mark Botwright. Christ, not us again. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking. And Mark's one. No, I'm, I'm afraid it goes on for another hour and a half yet, Mark. Right, so um, a bit of an odd one, this. You know, companies get so big these days that they, they then think that they can put together a holiday um, where you go and buy lots of things from them. So we've seen Black Friday, which is basically a load of retailers getting together in the States, putting on a sale. Although it's a load of dross usually in the sales, but it gets people in the door. Now Amazon are trying it on with their Prime Day um I really kind of get past. This is capitalism gone too far, Ed. Well, I didn't buy anything on Prime Day. I need to be very clear about this. Yeah, the um, day I'm not a Prime member. So. Wait till uh, we get to Mark. <laughs> um, but uh, I don't know. It's it's one of those things where I mean, I sort of it's. I don't know how well it stood up to repeat use, but I do get the idea. The first time they did it, wasn't it that everything was entitled to prime shipping even for non-prime members and stuff like that and it was just basically you know here's here's the brave new world of ordering it and on some occasions it will be there the next day and on some occasions if you ordered it in the morning it would be there on the same day and that's quite mad in its own way um and i sort of saw the point to it um but yeah i mean it's just it's one of those it's ultimately um it lives or dies on the media paying attention to it and i just you know, it, it, it for if the media decided that you know it's not a uh, it's not you know, not something that's newsworthy, it would have been it would have died on its ass. But regrettably, it didn't. There was a cracking tweet though from someone who went, you know, in 1990s, Amazon. Hi, we 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 sell books online. You know, Amazon 2030. Good 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 morning, prime citizens. Retreat to your prime houses <laughs> and wait for your prime meals and you know sort of stuff yeah. like that. It's like mm, yes, which is kind of what I was trying to get at. Ed. It's it's like dictating to us now that we will go and shop and the, and the media get behind it I mean I could not believe the tech sites and all the others that oh Amazon Prime the under, you know I must do this must do. Ah, it's just a sale it's 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 one of those things I mean the irony is um, actually yesterday I had to go into the town centre of Milton Keynes which I do very rarely cool. um, can you make I, it sound like something from a sci-fi film I'll, I'll, t- I'll tell you what I'll tell you what Mark I've been uh, I've been a couple of times and each each occasion I've what had to walk through that shopping centre but it's open to the elements and the wind that comes through there and it the <laughs> the restaurants in there, you know, you know, good on them. They, they were upbeat and happy because they were putting tables and chairs out for people to sit outside. And there's no eats outside. It was like minus six. The wind coming through there. Well, to be fair, that wasn't an issue yesterday. But more, what was more, I was trying to say more on message. Um, having attended to the tasks I needed to do, I actually went into HMV. You know, more, mainly out of a sense of masochism. And sure enough, their record section is mainly expensive repressings of things you can buy much cheaper as the originals. But all power to them. They had an album which I've been umming and ahhing about buying, and it was there in stock, and it was less than it would have cost me on Amazon. So I bought it. Go High Street. And the next time I return to the town centre in about six months' time, I might do the same thing again. So, you know, I was I was quite impressed with that. But you, no, spent no money on Prime Day. Did, did you get a carrier bag with it? I'm afraid I have reached that juncture in life where I generally have a bag for life with me at all times anyway. Because <laughs> I had to... Um, You're not alone. You're not alone. I had to go and collect a number of other things. No, and it's only five I, pence. <laughs> no, it's more... It's I had to collect... Well, I, I've got to be careful here because there's birthday presents involved in this. But I had to collect two objects which wouldn't sit happily. Oh, should, in a... should, hang on. Should I just take out my earphones? <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. That's all right. Um, I, I, it just struck me as, look, you know, I've always got a bag for life in the back of the car. So I took that in and, and put it all in, in there. It worked fine. If you find me sad for that, then I, you know, I'm in a good place with no, that. No, what I was, was going to get onto was the, the fact that... The, it's a sight that you don't see on the high street anymore as people walking along with carrier bags with 12-inch records in them. It used to be a common sight on the high streets of Great Yeah. Britain. To be fair, actually HMV have gone all in because their carrier bags now are pretty much only suitable for carrying a 12-inch record. If you put anything <laughs> else in, they look really stupid. So, you know, yeah, that's, they, that's fair enough. They've got to make it worthwhile for the five pence charge. Right, so uh, who spent an awful lot of money on Amazon rubbish day? Me. I spent a lot of money. Did you? Uh, I 
I haven't added it up yet, but I, I, I'll, uh, I bought probably about 12 things. Uh, okay. The first thing I bought, it was started the night before on, on the Tuesday, is that right? And the up at the... Run... <laughs> Sorry? Was that like Advent? <laughs> yeah, it was like an ad, yeah. It was, it was prime, prime Day Eve, yeah, that's what it was. Uh, and they were doing the Amazon Echo at 79.99, and I'd quite fancied one anyway, um, so I just dived in and bought one of them. And that was that, and I... It arrived and I was quite happy, but that enthused me to buy uh, two Echo Dots for um, for the kids for the for Christmas. I bought early Christmas presents, and that they were thirty five pounds each from forty nine ninety nine, which I thought was a really good buy. I bought for no particularly good reason, other than it was really late. I bought Call of Duty Infinite Warfare, uh, some sort of special edition, and that, uh, on close because I'd seen something on Facebook, and it said if you click through, it ends up at like seven ninety nine or something, and it did. So just on principle that it was really cheap, I bought that. I'll never play it, but it was seven ninety nine. This is what the world's coming to. <laughs> it's not the worst game. It's just because it was cheap. I bought it. Uh, don't, I bought... don't add up. Never add up the individual prices. Add up how much you've saved. Then you'll exactly. feel better. I saved £42.99 on that. So I feel quite proud of it. And you spent a grand. Yeah. <laughs> I bought some um, high-quality kitchen, or so they said on the box, kitchen scissors, which is like a, almost like shears, like garden shears, except for your kitchen for cutting up. You know, bones and chicken. <laughs> and they're really good. I'm quite pleased. They were a grand total of ten pounds ninety nine. Uh, I bought a waiter's mate corkscrew, uh, walnut finish, um, spring loaded. Very nice. Well, it had, uh, it had I, to be walnut finish. It you know, no, couldn't have any other fish. It. No, very nice. Oh no, oh, it's actually rosewood. Sorry, I'm lying. Rosewood. Uh, Mark, Five ninety nine. Would I would I be right? Would I be right in saying that the shopping channels are disabled on your TV at home? <laughs> Actually, yeah. For your are. own good. Does yeah, Mrs. Hodgkinson have to issue you with the I'm car? I'm not really like this. So I, I, something about Prime Day just, just got me all in. I bought a mouse mat, well, uh, sorry, a keyboard and mouse mat, which is too small. Uh, that costs £11. It doesn't fit my mouse. <laughs> I can only fit the keyboard <laughs> on it. <laughs> I'll probably never send that back because I just can't be bothered. Uh, I bought a... Um, <laughs> a, a pop, have you ever heard of pop sockets? No. Is it like a little a cupboard handle you stick on the back of your phone so you don't drop them? Oh, that wasn't for me. That was for my daughter. She wanted one. Uh, and then um, 480 tea bags, Clipper Organic Everyday Unbleached tea bags, the uh, premium tea bag for me. 7.99 for 480 bags. That was cheap because I normally 14.48. And finally, I bought a um, what can it's a it's it's a it's a little sandwich box type of thing you use to carry cables. It's a, like a cable organizer for travelling. <laughs> <laughs> so so the, so so basically, the PR worked on you big time. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. hook line sink. I don't know what's, what. It, it'll have been all those you know, news at AV forums emails landing talking about you know Prime Day this and Prime Day that. It probably was. It probably got to me. You know, normally we've done a little thing when it's been um, you know, Black Friday and, and all that kind of thing. We've done a little features haven't we and little stuff and I, I just ended up doing that except not you know not putting it in print and actually just buying all the all the items available <laughs> <laughs> so i spent and something like 147 quid on that's why jeff bezos is a billionaire yeah <laughs> but I, joking about i got some good bargains you keep yeah. telling yourself that mate. You keep telling <laughs> i got so i came quite close dropping a ton of money because i've been thinking i'm think definitely going to buy a, a bean to cup coffee machine at some point and they did have quite a nice one uh available on prime uh, on prime day um down from i think 900 quid to about 400 quid or 3999 well, that's a well, bit that, out of my price well that sort out your crooky voice <laughs> no um so that that was a possibility but i thought it's a bit toppy on the price even at half the price it's still or even more than half the price um i still thought it was a bit toppy so uh, i didn't i ended up just buying um i bought a psvr game i bought um Star Trek Bridge Crew, which apparently is very good. They had PS, they had, I almost bought a PS4 Pro with VR as well. I was very excited for that. <laughs> <laughs> you were really going for it, weren't you? Really was, yeah. But that was, how was, how, what was it? It was something like, I had three games, the camera, uh, the VR headset, and obviously PS4 Pro. And it was something like 575 quid or something. It was that's cheap. It was actually quite good. Jeez. Yeah, no, there were some genuinely good deals about it. Jesus, uh, there was that's, the, that's about eight tanks of fuel. Yeah, well, you know, we all have different ways of calculating this. I think in albums, Phil thinks yeah. in, in mileage. Steve I thinks think in, in Blu-rays. UH, UHD Blu-rays. Blu-rays, yeah. 
Mr. Botwright, it'll be in games, is it, for you? Yeah, yeah. And I, I did almost buy a PS4 Pro on Prime Day as well. <laughs> um, <laughs> only I, I, I don't have the TV to go with it, so... And I take it they didn't have any B7s available. That's, that's what you're going for, isn't it? Yes, yes it is. Yeah. Hopefully, at some point. Good stuff. Um, I, I thought there were some decent deals about. I think it's, it's quite hard to kind of build a buzz around, you know, a, an online shopping day. Unlike Black Friday, you won't get images of, you know, people fighting over Polaroid TVs or anything. So, you know, I, I thought they, they did reasonably well. I, I think the whole Black Friday thing's backfired on them, really. That year where everybody, you know, that was staged um, for the TV cameras and that, putting the the people at the door and rushing in and all the rest of it. And, and it backfired on them, big style. And I think a lot of retailers now are, are kind of stepping back from the whole Black Friday thing. They'll still have their sales and all the rest of it, but they're not going for the over-the-top PR spin that they did because I, I think, Steve, they got their hands burnt. It did. And also, I think, you know, people need to remember that Black Friday started in the States, where that Friday is the Friday after um, Thanksgiving, which is traditionally if people take a day off. So they go shopping um, in the stores on Black Friday. They got the day off. They go and do the sales. Whereas obviously in the UK it's not a holiday. So having a sale in a store seems a bit pointless. I think where it has been successful has obviously been online online sales on that day because obviously you can do it from your desk at work or if you can do it from home, you don't have to worry about her trying to get into the stores. Um, but yeah, I think I think as the, as British people. The idea of us all queuing and fighting to buy Polaroid TVs just doesn't look good on TV. Yeah, and, and we, it's not it's not our thing, is it? We're we're above that kind of behaviour. We're not no, Americans. And I think I if you look if you look closely, I mean, maybe you know, maybe at Amazon there, there was some some decent things to have there. Most notably on their own product, like like what Mark bought, you know, the Echo and, and the dots and stuff. There was some good bargains that we had there on their on their product. But you look elsewhere and you look Black Friday and all the rest of it. There's maybe one or two really good deals on really good bits of kit if you're looking at electronics but the rest just a load of rubbish really it's it's stuff that's sitting in the stock room that they can't get yeah, rid of yeah they're just trying to clear clear crap aren't they they can't sell yeah. that's what, most, that's what most sales are about yeah but it's not like the american sales you know they they really do go out and there are some absolute stonking bargains to be had because like you say it's a public holiday over there everybody goes out shopping it's the last sort of big shop before christmas as well so it's when the christmas shopping period starts over there as well so it's a big traditional thing um it like you say it doesn't work over here and the retailers, it, you know, you'll get one or two big deals that are go really, really quickly. There's maybe only two or three to do the whole country. And then the rest, it's just tart. I think most people spend Black Friday in this country looking at the RRP that's claimed and saying it was never that price. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of that that goes on as well. Anyway, let's move things on. Um, how do you fancy joining us at BAFTA? Uh, that, and when I say us, I mean me and Steve. We're going along there because <laughs> Philips are holding a TV tech shootout. They're going to be putting OLED against QLED. Um, it's not really a shootout in the in the sense of um, you know these these things that happen in America and all the rest of it, and they, they they're all looking for the best TV and all the rest. Of it. It's more of an educational event because Philips have quantum dot and they also have OLED in their lineup, and it's more a case of putting the two together and then looking at. Uh, the different te- TV technologies and which might suit you best better than the other and you know what are the strengths and weaknesses of each um, so it should be an interesting evening it's happening on the 3rd of August uh, at BAFTA in central London if you want to join us then send an email uh, which is in the front page of the forum so you need to go to the front page of the forums it's uh, bottom of the top section you'll see the story click through on that there's an email address within there and send an email through uh, to book your place i think there's 25 places on there where we'll, we'll have a uh, a waiting list as well just for people who might fall out and or drop out at the last minute so if you want to come along and meet steve in person you'll be signing autographs and uh, <laughs> uh so if you want to come along you want to uh to meet us you want to see the tv tech and also um philip's head of tv picture uh danny tack will be there as well or at least he's hoping to be there um very interesting guy He'll talk all about picture processing and picture quality and all that kind of thing. He does a really good presentation. Um, he's he's Mr. TV Picture when it comes to Philips TVs. So uh, if you want to come along to that event, then search out the story on the homepage, click the email and email us to join in. So I'm going to go to Mr. Bot right now. Competitions. Okay, yep. You can win a copy of uh, London Heist on DVD, and that one ends on the 20th of July. And you can also win a scan-exclusive Cedia Luxury gaming chair worth £220, and that one ends on 30th of August. 
Okay, some interesting competition prizes there. And uh, any previous competition winners? Oh, yes. Um, St. Blob won L on Blu-ray. <laughs> nice username. Uh, right, okay, so that's the competitions. Let's move on uh, to some hardware stuff. And, uh, Ed, you've been looking at some AV speakers for a change. Normally hi-fi speakers, but these are AV speakers um, from ATC. ATC has been uh, around for a long time, and um, there is a bit of a niche market for them, but it's nice to see them coming a bit more mainstream these days. Yes, um, that sort of started a few years ago. Um, they launched the SCM series, their entry-level speakers, um, uh, that would have been about 2014. We've had a look at um, them in both a 5.1 package and we've looked at the, the 40 floor standards. And um, they managed to still be ATCs, but they're a little bit more room friendly, a little bit more cosmetically inoffensive, shall we say. Um, but they've gone and done something quite interesting. Now, I saw these at Munich um, and there was an announcement about them. They have gone and produced what are called the HTS series of loudspeakers. And essentially, these are um, the stereo members of the SCM family converted into wall-mounted um, satellite speakers. And it just, it, it, it sort of was a bit of an interesting one because um, of all the companies that were sort of in the position to do that, I didn't have ATC pegged as the people that were going to. Um, and it sort of asked an interesting question then, well, are they, what happens when you try a five channel pack of those? So I did. And it's genuinely quite an impressive achievement because ATC have a couple of advantages as a brand in terms of turning a pair of conventional standout speakers into a wall mounted pair of speakers. Uh, none of their entry level series have a, have a base port. So, that makes no odds to the driver or crossover in an absolute sense when they'd simply put them in a different sealed cabinet. Um, and they have then in turn just adjusted the behavior of the crossover and, and, and the drivers to an extent where um, it takes into account the level of, of wall reinforcement from being so close to to a, a vertical surface. So, so basically and, they've, they've designed in the boundary gain. Yes. Yeah. Um, and if you look on the website, I mean, ATC are the most pessimistic company on earth for measurements. But um, they basically, the, the if you look at the SCM7 and the HTS7, the HTS7, as near as makes no difference, has a full extra octave um, at the bottom end, which is quite an achievement. Um, and what's more, that does seem to be borne out in some testing. Um, obviously, uh, you may be disappointed to learn that I didn't, do a full-on wall mount for all five loudspeakers but i was able to essentially get them right up against a wall for testing and so on and so forth and yes it, it genuinely pays pays dividends and it sort of got me thinking because um you know when we go to serious cinema installs wall mounted speakers are com are completely the norm and yet it doesn't seem to be an area where outside of you know, small satellite speakers that we've we commercially, domestically, there seems to be that much interest in it, which always strikes me as peculiar because, you know, what you're being offered is a, a fairly high performance solution that also then doesn't eat into any of the available floor space that you yeah. have. Yeah, I mean, the, the M&Ks I tested recently, um, both sets of the M&Ks. So I did the, the stand mount version of the S150 and then the wall version. Uh, no difference. Absolutely no difference in sound quality, even though one is designed to go up against the wall and the other one was designed to be stand mount and, and away from the wall. No difference in, in terms of performance and sound quality when I had them together. And then I didn't bother with the stand mounts when it came to reviewing the, the higher end ones because I knew that the, the wall mounts, which I'm still using as a reference system at the minute, work absolutely perfectly fine up against the wall as they're designed to do and and they sound absolutely stonking for it and mm. the other advantage there is if if you're using an eq system it absolutely it actually helps the eq system out as well because it, it hasn't got to worry about that hasn't got to worry about boundary gain and all the rest of it you know, when it comes to correcting it so certainly systems like the lingdorf system that i tested recently they actually say put the speakers up against the wall because yeah, uh, their system, the way it it works out the processes and the filters for the room, um, it helps it out. So there's a lot of plus points to yeah. high high performance wall mounted speakers. It um, it seems to be just something that 
uh, you know, we're we're just reluctant, perhaps, as consumers to get to get in on. If if I could do it, Ed, what I would do, and and certainly Steve will back me up on this because this is this is experiments that we've done together. If if I could get away with it without eating into my room by a foot, I would actually have a. a a complete fabric wall with my acoustically transparent screen and the speakers hidden behind that that wall. There's just something about the fact that if you can't see the speaker, it makes the experience more enjoyable. It, it opens up the sound stage that little bit more because your mind's not playing tricks on you by looking at the at the speaker that's in front of you. And that might sound like bollocks, but me and Steve have done the experiment and it it works. It's it absolutely there's just something about hiding the speaker away so you can't see the speaker behind the the surface um that just opens up the presentation am i talking bollocks steve not at all um definitely uh if you can if you have the option to um, make the speakers invisible basically from where you're sat in a dedicated room it makes a vast difference to your experience i know it sounds crazy but just basically you know if you go into a cinema into you know a commercial cinema you'll, you'll see that okay you can occasionally see speakers on the sides but basically they're certainly at the front you can't see them and generally you can't see them at the sides and rear either and it creates um you know a sense of the sound just filling the room without any point of reference and therefore it makes it a more immersive experience yeah, it's something weird about the brain being able to see where the sound's yeah. coming from. It's yeah. strange. The other thing I, th- I think that ATC have been very clever about is by taking an existing range of loudspeakers and essentially creating creating this sub-range from there, it does mean that if you were taken with the SCM40s as a stereo loudspeaker, um, and there's no reason why you shouldn't because obviously when I reviewed them, they were ridiculously good, you could then essentially give them room space but build they could be then integrated into a surround into a surround pack with just three of the hts7s on wall um it's the same the same basic driver well same tweeter and same basic driver assembly in all of them alternatively if you want to go all in they've created a wall mounting version of the scm40 the hts i mean obviously a 40 liter what is essentially a, a, a wall mounted floor stander it's not small but again, if if space is at a premium, uh, that seems to be it's it's quite an impressive achievement. And um, you know it, what I like about them is that whilst there are some concessions to making them domestically quite friendly bits of kit, they haven't compromised at all on any of the oily bits. I don't think as a brand they could bring themselves to do that, and it it really pays off. They were one of the products. Um, I suspect when it comes to summing everything up at the end of the year, one of the most genuinely surprising things that I, I'm likely to have tested, simply because when I was looking back on the notes from when I tested the SCM7 multi-channel system, it was appreciably pretty much the same, but with the benefit that if it was a, a full-on install in my own house, it would have taken up a vast amount less space. Yeah, good stuff. Uh, so that review should be up on this site by the time you're listening to this podcast, or certainly the week uh, that this podcast is out there. So keep your eyes open for that one. Let's move on to Mr. Botwright. Um, a bit of a special day for you on Monday, is it not? Sorry, sorry. Just uh, just knocked over a hip flask. <laughs> <laughs> Barely for that. Is that what you've been reduced to? Quick swigs of whiskey during this podcast. <laughs> How dare you? Slow gin. Um, <laughs> Right. Yes, yes, it will be my birthday. Okay, uh, many happy returns for Monday. Yeah, and uh, and what age are you now? Twenty nine again. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny that because I'm always twenty one. There you go. Yeah, so happy birthday! Right, it just says on my running order. Mark updates us with the latest gaming news. I can see Steve spent a lot of time putting this together. <laughs> Deliberately vague. Well, I told Steve there was pretty much nothing going on in gaming at the moment because you know we're in the kind of post e3 lull but a couple of bits came out and might uh pique ed's interest and perhaps even yours phil um gran turismo sport uh finally has a release date polyphony digital's first kind of outing for its sony exclusive racing series on the playstation 4 it sounds even though it comes with the moniker sport it's actually a mainline game it's not an offshoot in the kind of concept or prologue style it's, it's a series now kind of known as much for delays. Uh, it was supposed to be out at the tail end of last year. There was supposed to be an open beta, and it turned into a, a closed one at a later date, I think, largely because when people first saw the game, there was some 
criticism that it looked a little rough around the edges. Um, now we've had a, a new trailer drop, and it seems like the release date now is October the 18th uh, this year. Probably more likely to keep this date, as it kind of ties in quite closely to when Forza Motorsport 7 on the Xbox One is going to release on October the 3rd. So, you know, spirit of competition might ensure that it, it holds to that date. Um as as with as you'd expect, given it's kind of a, a a big flagship title and very much of the shinier variety that Sony like to show off, it's going to support PSVR as well as PlayStation Pro support for in 4K and HDR. So you know, it sounds like they've taken the time to polish it. And uh, oh, uh, also first time I think they're featuring uh, Porsches in the game as well. Well, as long as they've tried to go some way to unruining it, that would be also a definite step in the right direction the first couple of Gran Turismo games I appreciate what I loved about them was that you could make it as challenging or as you know as as facile as you fancied it if you wanted to take a 900 horsepower car to race a group of family hatchbacks you could the game didn't judge you for it it just sort of wondered what on earth you were up to um so, I think everyone. I think we all did that, Ed. The more recent, <laughs> no, the more recent ones. They got rid of grid. Largely got rid of grid starts. It just ceased to become a racing game. It just became a, a soulless pursuit exercise. And the points system was just banal. And you know, I remember. I can't remember the last one I actually bought and pl- played. The one with the Lunar Rover simulator. Because obviously that's exactly what I'm looking for in a racing game, and I just think, remember, I think there was none, absolutely none of the joy that went with the first couple of them. And I appreciate that I've got older and sadder and all the rest of it, but it just felt cynic. It was a cynical grinding exercise, unless you were prepared to spend umpty thousand pounds on on downloadable content. I just couldn't be bothered with it. I'd, I'd race for about. Mm, 10 minutes and then decide I wasn't any good at it so then I would start going the wrong way around the track and then trying to do other things and seeing if I could cause huge pile-ups and, and all the rest and of it. Grand Theft Auto was born. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's how Grand Theft Auto came into, yeah. uh, into yeah. being. So. Yeah, I'd, I, I would just realise that it wasn't for me. It was, I'd get bored with it and then I'd just smash them up and, and get bored with it and then never go back and play it again. I, well, I was, and you I, weren't I, invited I was, back. I obviously have a higher boredom threshold than you, but I loved, I mean, Gran Turismo 1 and Gran Turismo 2 are stone-cold classics, absolutely magnificent. Um, And I just want, in some ways, I would like to have got, you know, just make me a beautiful version of those, and I would have been as happy as the proverbial pig. Um, So I, I will wait and see what the situation is. I mean, obviously, I, you know, I don't have the hardware as it stands at the minute either, but... You know, it's there was a time when it would have been unthinkable for me not to have had this pretty much instantly. And at the moment, I just can't summon up any excitement about it at all. Right. I think it's time to move on. Thanks for the games news, Mark. Uh, let's move on to the Oppo uh, UDP 205. This is an Ultra HD Blu-ray player that costs £1,600. Uh, actually, it doesn't cost that much. I was slightly wrong last week. Uh, okay. It only costs £1,399. Oh, well, that's a lot better than I'll have to. <laughs> Hodge will buy two on Prime Day. Yeah. <laughs> Wait for those prices to come down. Yes, yes. Uh, this is an expensive player. There's no question about that. Obviously, 1,399 quid. So the first question, Steve, you know, I'm, I'm not being cruel here, but the thing is, if it's doing things right, as we've said week after week recently when we've been reviewing these players, if it's, if it's not tampering with video signal, then this will have ex- identical picture quality to the £188 Panasonic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you're talking about playing an Ultra HD Blu-ray over a digital output, of course it's the same. Obviously, you can find other areas where there, there may be incremental improvements, things like upscaling. So if you're playing a DVD or a Blu-ray, perhaps, then you might find that Oppo's scaling is extremely good, and it is really good. But then again, you can get the same performance in that sense from the much cheaper, relatively speaking, UDP 203, which you can get for £649. Uh, let's be honest, this player isn't aimed, I mean, I don't suppose Oppo expecting to sell very many of them for a start. It's it's aimed at a very specific part of the market. If you're looking for digital transport, if you're looking for something to play discs over HDMI, then clearly don't go dropping 1,400 quid on this because you're wasting your money. Um, there are lots of great players you can pick up in the two to 300 pound, two to 400 pound range um, that will do the job brilliantly for you. If you want SACD and uh, DVD audio playback, then certainly, you know, look at the Sony, the X800, because that will do that, and it's only going to be 350 quid. So 
there are definitely other alternatives. This player really is aimed at someone looking for a very high quality uh, disc player with analog outputs. So that really where, where all the money and where all the differences are are in terms of the analog outputs on this. So if you're looking for digital output, then clearly don't worry about it. But if, if, if you're looking for something that can be used uh, as a, a player with an analog output, then that, that's what this is aimed at. Um, it's seen that people want to buy a really, really expensive high-end um, universal disc player. So obviously it plays CD, DVD, DVD audio, Blu-ray, 2D and 3D, Ultra HD Blu-ray, and SACD as well. So it plays all the disc formats, and it has extremely high-quality digital analog conversion built into it, the same uh, as the DAC that Ed is currently reviewing, the Oppo, what's it called, Sonica? Sonica, yes. Yeah. So if, if that's what you're looking for, if you're looking for something like, with XLR outputs and this kind of thing, then yes, it probably ticks your boxes and will deliver a stunning performance. But clearly, if you're just looking for an Ultra HD Blu-ray player, um, then it's not even in consideration, is it? I mean, you, you, there are loads and loads of other players available at a fraction of the cost that will do just as good a job in terms of digital output of picture and sound over HDMI. And the- Slightly awkwardly, if you then also, Oppo haven't done themselves any favours here because you could take the £188 one, which I believe has an optical out, uh, and bolt on the Sonic attack, and you'd still be up. Yeah. Over yeah. the cost <laughs> of the... Of the- <laughs> Um, and uh, I wouldn't necessarily want to bet money on being able to tell the difference. And as we've discussed, what Steve and I were discussing on Skype yesterday, just to, just to further stick two fingers in your eyes, the Sonic DAC has got um, Tidal and Spotify support inbuilt as part of its part of its app. And what's more, it's one of the very nicest integrated Tidal apps I've ever used. Um, and yeah, that's sort of a bit galling because, as I understand it, the the H, the Blu-ray player doesn't doesn't have either of those. Currently, as it stands, it has no apps whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, which, I mean, which, I'm sure which, they will add apps over time, but right now, zip. Yeah, which, which again is is another thing. I mean, I know it's not the be all and end all, but if you pick up the Samsung or the Panasonic and so on, they they come with Netflix and and uh, yeah. Amazon in 4K with HDR, so they start to become a, a nice little media hub especially the Samsungs who can do the refresh, proper refresh. Yeah, absolutely. There's, well. there's a cracking players for um, watching uh, watching streaming services on. Absolutely brilliant. Um, yeah, no, I mean, okay. There's going to be a segment of the market, a very small segment of the market, that are going to look at, and don't get me wrong, it's a gorgeous looking, I love a big player, you know, built like a tank, site and operation, smooth, you know, it's, it's all, you know, you're paying for a certain degree of build quality and, and you'll get that, definitely. And if you like that kind of thing and, and you've got the money to spend and you want, maybe you want balanced XLR outputs on the back of your player and all these sorts of things, then and clearly that's what it's aimed at. But I think for, for the majority of people, clearly, certainly in terms of the digital side of things, it's exactly the same, basically, as the 205. I mean, they will talk about things like, you know, reclock and jitter and all this sort of stuff. But in my experience, you know, any half-decent player over digital it's going to sound the same as any other player of digital, and I think a lot of it's placebo whether you can tell the difference or not. Yeah, there's going to be people that are going to drop 1,400 quid on a player, and I'm sure they'll be very happy with their purchase. But in reality, if you're looking for an Ultra HD Blu-ray player, there are lots of great choices at significantly less money. And uh, my endless <laughs> reviews of players is almost over now. I've only got one more to go with uh, with the LG UP970. Okay. Good for you. Uh, so the Oppos have the Dolby Vision on board. So this is going yes, to become the big hot potato really going forward because people are now, like we say, they're going to take boxes. They're going to they're gonna go with this, the product that has everything on it. So this is going to be the products that have Dolby Vision on them. So the big question is going to be, is there any perceivable difference between HDR10 and Dolby Vision content? Um, now, there's, I think there's two caveats to this, Steve. I think where Dolby Vision is supposed to really work is with TVs that aren't quite as capable as the higher-end TVs. So TVs with that roll off at, say, about 600 to 800 nits, are gonna, they're going to benefit Dolby Vision content more than the top end sets so that's one caveat that that we have to mention there which i'm sure you're going to come on to with your comparisons and the other is that technically there really shouldn't be that big a difference because hdr10 is actually part of dolby vision anyway yeah um i should probably start by saying that my my testing to date has only been done with one 
TV, uh, the B7, and using the Oppo 203, which, as you just said, Phil, supports Dolby Vision. So, um, And it's probably no coincidence that, that LG have been in bed with Dolby Vision in terms of their OLED TVs, because, as you just said, where it can really add values on TVs that perhaps haven't got quite the peak brightness of certain other TVs. So this so far, my, my research so far is based on one TV. What will be interesting is comparing um, a TV that can deliver the full, at least 1,000 nits of peak brightness and the full DCI color space against using HDR10 against Dolby Vision. And also there are going to be TVs like the ZD9 and the um, XC94, which are full array backlight LCD televisions that can deliver well over 1,000 nits and will also have Dolby Vision. I'm interested to see what it looks like on those. So at the moment, my testing is based upon one TV comparing Dolby Vision to HDR10. And I have to say that the difference is not night and day. There is a perceivable incremental improvement in the picture quality on Dolby Vision but you really have to go looking for it. Um, sometimes it's, you think, oh, that looks better. Because where it really adds value, I think, is obviously with an HDR10 encode, you're talking about a single peak brightness setting of, say, 1,000 nits, or in the case of Dolby Vision, 4,000 nits for the whole film. And where it struggles sometimes is going from a bright scene to a dark scene where suddenly you know, you've got your peak highlights set and everything else becomes darker. So where um, Dolby Vision can help out is because it's dynamic metadata, it can adjust from scene to scene even frame to frame if it needed to. Uh, and therefore, you do get a more consistent experience across the entire film. Um, I've only got three uh, Dolby Vision discs so far, Despicable Me, um, Despicable Me 2, and Power Rangers. Now, Despicable Me uh, 1 and 2, obviously, they're computer animated, a very bright animation. Um, I definitely felt like I was getting a little bit more detail and pop in the highlights, particularly uh, on the on the Dolby Vision experience, where I felt it was much more noticeable was Power Rangers because that's got live action in it. It's real people, and there's a more of a there's more darker scenes, and it's it's, it's more of a you know it's it's a much more mixed material experience in terms of the content, in terms of going from scene to scene. And there were definitely scenes. There was a scene where they they encounter um basically like a crystal wall um, at night in a quarry, uh, and the highlights on the on the crystal on the crystal the reflections of the light really popped in a way in Dolby Vision the way they didn't on HDR10 so I do think there were minor differences uh, and improvements in the experience but as I say it's not a night and day difference if you watched HDR10 you're not thinking well that looks terrible because it still looks really good but um if you, I started comparing scenes and specific, you know, picking specific scenes and going over them again and again and again which meant switching from one player to the next was a real pain um because I've got the one disc and two players connected to the same TV. So I was using the uh, Panasonic UB900 for the HDR10 experience and then the 203, the Oppo 203 for the Dolby Vision experience. Um, I did feel that I was getting a slightly better experience, but uh, it wasn't night and day. And, and I don't think anyone who's currently just watching HDR10 needs to feel they're massively missing out in any way at all. Did Philips OLEDs have um, Dolby Vision? No, they don't. They don't, don't no. Uh, not yet, at least. I mean, I know Philips have been looking. I mean, if you're talking about who supports Dolby Vision, uh, LG, Sony, currently, um, uh, Lerva supports Dolby Vision on their TVs. I know that um, Hisense have, have been talking about it, and they certainly, I've seen them, they've mentioned it quite a few times, so they've been thinking about doing it. Philips in the States, which is actually Funai, support Dolby Vision. Philips else outside the US, the rest of the world, TP Vision, don't currently, although again, they have been looking at it, and currently at least Panasonic and, and Samsung do not support it. So it's kind of half and half at the moment in terms of support. But um, in terms of players, as, as we mentioned, Oppo do support it, and LG have a player, the UP970, which supports Dolby Vision. And that would be your cheapest option, by the way, if you wanted to buy a player, the Dolby Vision, because that's about 280 quid. So you can get that. It was 230 on Amazon Prime. <laughs> was <laughs> it? Bought, Damn. nearly bought one of them as well. <laughs> Damn, because <laughs> I was thinking of getting one as a cheap option to have in the um, in the in the lounge with the B7. So yeah, um, I mean it, it's obviously early days uh, in terms of Dolby Vision. Um, I do think I can see the benefits um, uh, to a certain degree. It's incremental, but there are certain benefits there. And obviously, if you think about it logically, you know, I like the the whole idea of Dolby Vision being a closed ecosystem from start to finish, where you know how it's encoded on the Pulsar monitor. You you calibrate the display to their standards, and and everything's controlled along the whole distribution route. And you've got dynamic metadata in there, and you're delivering the best possible experience regardless of the TV's capabilities. I like all the aspects of it. Um, I think uh, if it's true that Do that Disney are now supporting Dolby Vision on their discs, that's going to be a real boost. 
for uh, for Dolby Vision just because of all the titles that Disney have got. Um, there's certainly a critical mass developing now in terms of players, displays, and content, uh, not just in terms of discs, but also in terms of streaming. And that's another area I think where it's important. Streaming is another area where it really can add value because, again, you're not talking about ideal conditions. Um, but if you've got a, an HDR, a good HDR10 TV, uh, you know, and a good player, and, and some, one of some of the great discs out there that use HDR10, you're still getting a fantastic experience, and don't think that in some way you're missing out because I don't think you are really. People will feel, feel like that, though. Well, they will. They, they particularly will. our audience and our members, I mean, because they want the best of the best, don't they? So, yeah, you know, yeah. If you can get just a tight, if you can get another two percent out of the picture, then why not? Like I said, where it would be interesting is would be comparing uh, the same film in HDR10 on a really good HDR10 TV, you know, something like, say, a Q9, which you can deliver yeah. uh, when well over a 1,000 nits peak brightness and a full 100% of DCI P3 against, uh, say, say, the B7 in Dolby Vision. That, that would make an interesting comparison, and we will do that at some point um, when we can. Okay, well, thanks for that, Steve. I mean, it is a, a subject that we're going to come back to probably uh, every week for the next two years so look forward still to a lot too. of research to be done i think in this area in terms of comparisons but i've just started the what is a you know a long process but uh this, initial, this impre- initial, initial impressions are good this will be your life's work with it yeah <laughs> that's, that's it. what you'll be remembered for <laughs> steve dolby vision withers dobly oh by the way steve power rangers aren't real people well the actors play them are <laughs> it's just the way you said it <laughs> listen back well, I guess it's not entirely CG. Obviously, there are elements of reality. In yeah. Well, let's let's stop talking about their classic uh, films and move on and talk movie news. So, with this one, I've got a bone to pick because I was prepared to go and see War uh, for the Planet of the Apes on Tuesday because in the UK uh, we had advanced screenings on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then the film opens Friday. And because the film opens on Friday, that's the only time you can see the 2D version. So for Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday, it was 3D only in cinemas, which I wasn't happy with. I wasn't happy with the fact that I would have to pay £2 extra. <laughs> I just took the principle of it. It's not because I'm a tight Scotsman, but just the principle of it. But, you know, it's annoying, Steve, because I'd like to have seen it early so I could talk about it with you today. But unfortunately, I wasn't forced myself to go and see a 3D film that I really didn't. It wasn't filmed in 3D, and I really don't want to go and see it in 3D. I know yeah, you. I wasn't too keen about that either. Yeah, but you, it's your job. You've got to go and do it. Yeah, yeah, it was a bit annoying that it was only available in 3D in those, on those early days when it was being first screened. Because, as you said, Phil, it wasn't actually shot with 3D cameras. It's a post-conversion, pretty good post-conversion, I have to say. Um, but I would have preferred to have seen it in 2D. Um, however, I did go and see it, uh, and I have to say I did thoroughly enjoy it. Uh, I think this this reboot of the Planet of the Apes movies has been really good. I thought Rise was a was a big surprise. Rise of Planet of the Apes, I thought, was a big surprise in terms of its quality story it told and the way that it cleverly rebooted the whole idea and the concept and how the apes came to evolve into speaking and what happened to mankind etc i think they set it up really well in that film i thought that dawn um carried that idea on in, in an interesting way i thought that it had real balls to actually um have a film where large chunks of it are apes speaking to one another with sign language using subtitles in a in a major blockbuster movie. I thought that was an unusual experience. I thought it was a, a really well made film. It had, it had good protagonists. It had, um, you know, even the villains weren't necessarily villainous. They they had a point of view that you could understand. And I thought it was a really well well done film. Interestingly, that film was shot in native 3D. And when I saw it at the cinema, I saw it in 2D. So uh, there you go. Um, War for the Planet of the Apes obviously follows on from Dawn. Um, and again, it's, it, it has many of the same attributes of the earlier films. Uh, I think it's got some interesting characters. It's got really uh, interesting ideas. The way that it's tying in uh, things to lead up, if you like, to where you could see the original Planet of the Apes actually starting from is very clever. Uh, I think the animation and the, the motion capture performances and the animation of the apes is unbelievable. They've gradually got better over the three films. But, I mean, now it's just you totally forget that this isn't a real talking ape it's just staggering the level of animation the quality of the effects in this film is unbelievable uh despite the title it's not an all-out war film from beginning to end um there is a very big action sequence at the beginning and at the end both of which are really impressive but the middle section is, is not quite perhaps what you're expecting 
Uh, it's got a, a, a number of different influences on it in terms of films. You can clearly see where it's been influenced by things like The Outdoor Josie Wales, by um, The Great Escape, um, by, uh, I'm trying to think what other films it's been. It's got quite a few obvious references in it. That, uh, Apocalypse Now, there's loads of references to Apocalypse Now, uh, quite literal references to it at one point. Um, I think the villain's interesting, uh, although he's called the Colonel, he's clearly based on Colonel Kurtz. Um, I do think it has a couple of things I don't agree with. Uh, you know, it has that classic thing where the, the villain's got the hero right in front of him. Why don't they just kill him? <laughs> Why don't they just kill the hero when they've got the chance? They never do, and it obviously backfires later. But um, yeah, I don't want to go into too much in terms of the plot, but uh, I thought uh, it did most of it really well. There are things I have issues with, but overall, I thought it was entertaining, well made. It, it tied up the story to a certain degree over the three films very well. It set up certain things for later that I think it did really well, brought in some interesting ideas. The performances, both human and motion capture, are brilliant. The effects are quite staggering. It looks amazing. The 3D was pretty good for post-conversion as well, although I would have preferred to have seen it in 2D. Uh, and overall, I thought it was a really good, solid conclusion to what you can see as a trilogy of films. Uh, and uh, I think Kaz gave it 8 and I agree, 8 out of 10. Okay, good stuff. Uh, so films opening this Friday, there's a biggie. It's a very big film opening, yeah. So we've got two films opening this Friday. One, uh, Shroom's already seen, and a press screening called Shot, which is actually a documentary about Mick Rocky, um, Rock, the rock, ironically, the rock photographer. Um, I'm, I guarantee if you've got albums from the 70s and 80s, you've almost certainly got at least one album cover that was shot by Mick Rock. Um, um, interesting guy, and certainly a subject of a very interesting documentary. But the big release uh, this week, and unfortunately it opens on Friday, so I won't be able to see it before next week's podcast recording, but that's Dunkirk, the new film from Chris Nolan, uh, obviously about Dunkirk and um, shot in IMAX and 70 mil. So uh, if you get a chance to see it projected uh, in IMAX and 70 mil, I'm sure it's going to look absolutely amazing. As, as is often the case with Christopher Nolan, he's gone for an enormous amount of realism using wherever possible real ships, real spitfires, uh, real Messerschmitts. And an enormous amount of aspect ratios. Uh, I don't know if he's going to be doing that so much. Uh, if, I, uh, if he starts doing, I don't know why anyone would think switching aspect ratios from scene to scene and shot to shot is something anyone would want to do. I could, I, I'm all for shooting it in 70 mil in a single aspect ratio and going for the higher, you know, the high resolution of the larger film film for, film format. But yeah, as you saw with uh, Transformers a couple of weeks ago, how annoying is it when it just switches aspect ratio all the time? So if you get a chance to see it in IMAX in, in the higher resolution, larger film format, then I'm sure it'll look spectacular. We won't be able to talk about that next week on the podcast. But we will talk about it the week following because uh, we will have uh, been to see that. Right, so uh, Blu-rays this week very quickly. Uh, just one major release, which is Beauty and the Beast, the new Disney live-action version of their um, animated classic, which has been unbelievably successful considering it's almost an identical film in terms of plot and dialogue and songs and everything else. Um, but yeah, been a massive hit, uh, made over a billion dollars, and uh, comes out on disc. I'm sure it will look and sound stunning, um, as you'd expect from Disney on Blu-ray. Uh, no Ultra HD Blu-ray release, of course, because they haven't started doing that yet. They won't start to get Guardians of the Galaxy. But um, but yeah, that's out this week, and it should be a, a reference um, Blu-ray. Yeah, you can guarantee that's going to turn up on UHD Blu-ray later in the year, then. Uh, well, I mean, it'd be interesting to see how they do start going back over there. You know, I, I would expect. Uh, well, definitely, we've got Guardians in August. Everyone's saying that the next one will be Pirates of the Caribbean. Um, the fifth film will get an Ultra HD Blu-ray release. I noticed that's already been announced for Blu-ray, with, interestingly, Adobe Atmos soundtracks. So clearly, Disney are starting to move in that direction as well, just in terms of soundtracks for their discs. Um, and then you know, I, I'd be prepared to put good money on seeing Ultra HD Blu-rays of Rogue One and Force Awakens out in time for <laughs> Episode Eight. Okay, cool. Any other UHD news? Um, well, there's been an awful lot of debate about Guys of the Galaxy and whether it's got Dolby Vision because um, Bill Hunt over at the Digital Bits asked Disney on two occasions and they said yes the disc will be using Dolby Vision um, then they came back and said we're not sure so there seems and other people have been reporting that it doesn't uh, just HDR10 uh, so there's there's no actual confirmation yet as to whether it's going to have Dolby Vision or not um, definitely will have Dolby Atmos but will it have Dolby Vision we don't know categorically Logically, you'd think that would make sense because everyone was talking about Disney waiting for Dolby Vision to reach a point of critical mass before they came into the marketplace. Um, I'd be surprised if it didn't, but uh, yeah, there seems to be a little bit of doubt. Hopefully, there should be more clarification because this weekend is D23, their big Disney convention. Um, we might get better better clarification oh, about Jesus, it then. Do they have blinking conventions just for studios now, do they? Yeah. 
what, is the, what, what is the world coming to? Yeah, right after Comic Con too. So they're clearly <laughs> deliberately, deliberately doing that. Um, otherwise, though, it looks like uh, September the fifth will be the release date for Close Encounters on Ultra HD Blu-ray, which I'm quite looking forward to. Oh yeah, to celebrate oh. its 40th anniversary. That should be that should be worth getting. Um, yeah. Right, so uh, I saw something online this week that got me really excited, and that's Stranger Things 2 got a new trailer, a poster, and a release date. The poster is absolutely stunning. It get, I think the poster gives more feel than, than the trailer does. I mean, the trailer doesn't give you anything, basically. It's just the, the music and a few flashing shots, but the poster art is just, wow. What is that thing in the sky? It's, I'm so looking forward to this, and it it is going to be now. They haven't said it whether all the episodes are going to drop at the same time, which did happen with season one, or whether we're going to get. Yeah, they, one they will. It's Netflix own production, so it will be available. So they'll, they're all going to streaming on the seventeenth of October, I think it is, isn't it? No, twenty seventh, is it not? Is it twenty seventh? All right, yeah. Okay. Halloween. Yeah, yeah. That's a um, nice weekend then. Yeah, well, that's that weekend gone for me. <laughs> 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 that is it. So. um well, the weather's probably bad anyway. There's no need to take the Mustang out so I can spend the weekend watching Stranger Things too. Uh, right, so that just about wraps up the podcast. The only thing is that we mentioned Dunkirk and, of course, that's uh, set World War Two. It's one of these Titanic films, isn't it, Steve? I mean, we all know the, how it ends, basically. Uh, I guess it's going to have to be in, in how, how it's told. And uh, Well, it's going to how- be interesting because, yes, we know that everyone... Well, we know how Dunkirk ended and we know it became sort of like a successful failure, if you like. But uh, I was watching a documentary about Dunkirk last week, um, and for decades, even at the time, certainly before Battle of Britain, the army and the navy felt the RAF did not protect them and didn't do their job properly. Actually, it was not true at all. The RAF lost 600 planes battling Luftwaffe and trying to keep them at bay. But obviously, they were doing it further away from Dunkirk or so high up, no one could see them. Um, but interestingly, what happened was that they were struggling to hold the Luftwaffe back until they actually deployed the first Spitfires, and that turned the tide. And everything they learned from fighting at Dunkirk was then employed, that experience was then employed in the Battle of Britain. So it was a key point, not just in terms of getting those men off the beaches so we didn't have, you know, we had the troops back, but also in terms of how the RAF responded to the Luftwaffe going forward. So it was a turning point, I'd say a turning point in the war. And if we had lost 400,000 men at Dunkirk, um, then I think we'd have had to surrender, well, not surrender so much, but certainly um, negotiate some sort of peace with the Nazis, and it would have turned World War Two because we wouldn't have been fighting continually. America wouldn't have come into the war, and things would have been very different. So it's a vital, uh, a, a successful failure from our perspective, a bit like the film we've been quoting from at the beginning and we'll quote from at the end, which is a bridge too far about, about Arnhem and market, Operation Market Garden. Again, a successful failure. Uh, and my favourite World War Two, well, actually my favourite war movie, but certainly my favourite World War Two war movie, because I think it just really covers that whole operation in such detail and, and a level of accuracy you don't often see in movies. Um, I love it. Uh, but yeah, Dunkirk, I'm interested to see how how um, Nolan, um, Christopher Nolan plays this, because obviously he's going to do it from different perspectives. Uh, and I think it'll be interesting to get the story, st- story told um, you know, in detail and accurately in a way that probably hasn't been up until now. Anybody else want to try and get a word in edgeways? I have to say the Germans do very well um, at their own stories. Uh, I have to say, point to both Das Boot and Stalingrad as two of the most visceral, thoughtful, and um, very, you know, at times entirely depressing war films going. Um, Stalingrad in particular has one of the bleakest endings of any film I've ever seen of any genre um they are both exceptionally good um and i i rate them very highly uh, one film i loved as a kid um is a completely different sort of aspect of the same the same sort of um story if you will was um hope and glory which i don't know if anyone remembers was about um was 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 you know set set in uh, on on the home front it was uh, a, a kid's experience of of war and evacuation oh, yeah. and all sorts of things i thought that was really nicely observed and really a, a very very clever piece of filmmaking i thoroughly enjoyed that um and then after that it all starts to go you get degrees of excellence i mean the original battle of britain you know fought with large bits of the spanish air force is tremendously impressive um, considering its its relative age, um, 
and then after yeah after that it starts to sort of mm, not so sure i mean obviously you know there are things like private ryan and um uh fury and things like that but they're i don't know they're quite stylized uh, private ryan isn't deliberately i suppose it's stylized to an extent but it just you know it's completely ignores the existence of of, of various facets of d-day and so on and so forth but yeah the german ones for me sorry to drag that torturously back on topic they are the best too did you know there was a series of dust boot coming out Ed? Uh, i was loosely aware of it um it's one of those things as and when it sort of happens i've actually stopped me watching a lot of telly recently i mean we've got game of thrones kicking off again on monday yeah. uh, which i shall be spending some time on um but no i've been i've been um been music and writing because i'm going on holiday at the end of the month and i've been told if i bring any work on holiday with me i will be drowned off the south Devon coast <laughs> so um yeah i'm uh I, i'm going for it at the moment <laughs> you know what I, i've never been overly keen on world war ii films um largely because most of them as i was growing up all seemed to be from like about the 60s and 70s and they all seem to feature fairly old actors who seemed far too old to be in active combat and it looked like them kind of playing soldier that kind of thing you know um but uh, you know I, I i enjoyed the dirty dozen um probably the one I, I like most from a kind of stylistic point of view would be the thin red line um you know i prefer the kind of non-european centric view of things um you know the Pacific theater of war, um, very slow, very contemplative, uh, very atmospheric kind of feels more like a character study. And so maybe it's the fact that I've never really overly enjoyed world war two films in general. That one feels the most kind of almost abstract as a film. See, just to I've, enjoy. I've studied the Guadalcanal campaign. I had to do it at university. And I remember watching the thin red line and going, God, they never made much play of Sean Prenn crying in fields of grass as, <laughs> uh, as, as, as they seem to in the film. But you know, um, and then obviously that sort of led on to. I didn't realise that Terence Malick has such a um, a thing for long grass to the extent where he was sued by someone for wasting so much time <laughs> just filming in long grass. <laughs> yeah, I mean this this kind of brings it back to you know you know the uh, Dunkirk and Christopher Nolan's interpretation of this. Uh, you know how honest is it going to be because. For most films, I mean, even Schindler's List, which tries to be, it doesn't try to, you know, bang you over the head with stuff. But even so, it still has, it still has its bias built in there. Um, so, you know, should we expect these things to be accurate, or should we just expect them to be entertainment and and tell us a story, basically? I think if you're trying to recreate a specific actual historical event like say operation market garden or the longest day with with d-day or you know or or schindler's list where you're dealing with historical events i, I think it behoves you to try and re remain as accurate as possible and i think it annoys me more than than watching a film particularly when i was a kid and i was really into world war ii and i used to make loads of tank models and this sort of stuff when they used to see a you know when you'd see something that was clearly not a german tank like you know a sherman just covered with swastikas or something that used to annoy the hell out of me because um because yeah, that's not accurate. Do it properly. I, lo I love watching um, uh, Kelly's Heroes because they had a tiger tank in that. Same thing I love about the, about Furious because they use real tanks in that. A real tiger tank, fantastic. Um, but if it's not based upon anything real, uh, anything historically accurate, then I guess you can have fun with it. I mean, I love Where Eagles Dare, even though it's absolute cobblers, and you got you know a bit a bequiffed. Um, Clint Eastwood machine, holding two Schmeiser machine guns and letting grip with it. It's fantastic fun, though. You've got to admit, it's absolutely fantastic fun, even though it's historical cobblers. What, what about Inglorious Bastards, if you're talking yeah, about well, absolute cobblers? <laughs> so there, there's, there's, there's room for interpretation, depending on your approach. But if you're going with something that you're claiming to be historically accurate, then you need, I think you, there's an onus on you to actually stick to the historical accuracy. So for example, with Dunkirk, you should see how Nolan deals with the fact that the German Holt Order well, they stopped their advance, even though they had us on the run. They stopped their advance, which bought us some time. Um, and you know, there's debate about why the Germans stopped. Um, was it an order from Hitler? Was it because Goering thought he could let Luftwaffe hammer us uh, instead to show Nazi power in terms of air power? Um, was it because you know, there are lots of reasons why they stopped, um, or theories as to why the Germans stopped when they did? Um, how Nolan interpret and that that's open to interpretation to a degree because not everything's exactly known, obviously. Um, 
interesting to see yeah, how he portrays the RAF within Dunkirk because, as I say, they were uh, um, wrongly accused of not doing their job um, at the time um, to the point, apparently, where uh, RAF pilots that had been shot down and were trying to get off the beach were told to get their you know, RAF uniforms off because otherwise they wouldn't get let on the boats, which seems really harsh. Um, so, yeah, uh, and obviously there's the whole um, the, the, that, the myth of the little boats going out to, to help well, in fact, most soldiers were actually got off by the large ships. Um, but uh, there's that kind of that myth of the little boats coming to help and, um, and that kind of Dunkirk, um, you know, legend. Um, still, I'm, I'm sure it'll be... Uh, I've got a real issue with Nolan in some aspects uh, of his filmmaking. I thought Interstellar was absolute tripe. But, um, but uh, I'll be interested to see how he handles an historical event and whether he does it justice. Uh, I'm quite a fan of World War II movies, actually. Um, but I'll... Th- He's probably covered my favourite was Das Boot. is probably my favourite as per Ed. I've not seen Stalingrad, but I'll just try and check that one out. Um, I'm going to say two TV series, Pacific and Band of Brothers. Uh, having 10 hours to tell the story seems to make uh, a big yeah, uh, investment in the characters. And, that's that's yeah, what I was, I was really going to go on. Yeah. Yeah. I was going yeah, to mention well, them. They're, they're not really movies, but, you know... Uh, I, they've got I, the production values of a movie. They've got the production values of a film, though, haven't they? So, it's like yeah, a ten-hour yeah. movie. I, I must have binged those in uh, two or three Yeah, nights. I mean, my, my only thing there is that, you know, it's only the American side of the story. Um, yeah. Which, which does get a little bit annoying, especially in the European theatre, when you, where you know that there's, you know, a big mix of nationalities all, all taking part there in, in, in the battles and stuff. And you'd think it would be nice if the, they'd covered that aspect. But again, it's an American production, so they're going to concentrate on the American side of things, aren't they? But brilliantly done. I mean, so oh, realistic. Yeah. I haven't seen it, but I know, Steve, I mean, we're, we're, Hacksaw Ridge is supposed to be oh, that's good. pretty um, pretty visceral. It's- it's very, very visceral, um, and also quite unusually for a film. It actually downplays what the guy did in reality because no one would believe it. <laughs> Apparently, he saved something like seventy-two people that day, uh, including saving some Japanese injured soldiers. Although it wasn't um, a massive the, cliff, was it? It was just like a... it wasn't quite as massive as they show. But it, no. it, it, he did save seventy-two people. They only show him saving about thirty people in the film because they thought if we show him saving more than that, no one's going to believe it. Um, but yes, uh, it, uh, not, Mel Gibson can do violence and war very well and, and he does outdo himself in the battle scene which I spectacular saw. Also I think worth mentioning um I quite like the idea that uh Clint Eastwood had with um with his two films about about um Iwo Jima, yes. Bags of Our Fathers and and then counterpointing which is really not so much about the battle, but about after the battle mm-hmm. and the myth that surrounds it and the idea of the guys who put the flag up and that sort of thing. That was a really interesting uh, take on the battle. And then doing um um Sounds of Iwo Jima so they showed the no sorry Letters from Iwo Jima which shows the battle from the Japanese perspective, which again is not something that's done very often in Western cinema at least. Um, and then from that point of view if you mentioned German films, Ed, I think Come and See, a, a Russian film about their experiences on the Eastern yes. Front, is an utterly brutal <laughs> harrowing experience um, but certainly uh, gives you a, a taste of what how, how truly because we obviously think about World War II being won by us and the Americans, but actually World War II was won by the Russians uh, and, and the battles on the Eastern Front uh, you know, outstrip even the brutality of the Pacific theatre of war in terms of what happened there and the sheer scale of the eastern front the battle of kursk for example the tank battle the biggest tank battle in history you know you got you got no concept of what happened and the 30 million russians that died fighting the nazis that's where it was won and lost so even even on film even if they take a little bit of dramatic license and, and so on there's a lot a lot of brave people with a lot of courage and a, a lot more courage than i probably would have you know going into battle and and you know fighting for for what they believe in and all the rest of it and there was you know millions of lives given during that that war and sometimes you look at it and you think well is it a bit perverse that that we're looking at entertainment in terms of films because you know for these subject matters or should the stories be told you know it's um it's an interesting counterpoint that and you know they always say that the veterans never spoke about what they did and they never um they didn't they didn't want the spectacle of being it's not like today's society where everybody wants to be famous they didn't want that they they, they shunned that they They'd done their service, they'd done their bit, and uh, you know, which is a bit of a shame because I think there's a lot of stories that should should have been told that probably never will be told now because um, because the people are gone now. Well, yes, um, but people can compa- do deal with uh, events of of that sort of momentous nature in, in different ways. Um, anyone that wants to uh, actually investigate that further, there is a magnificent book by a man called Glenn Gray. It was written, oh God, 20 or 30 years ago now. It's called The Warriors um, and it's a fantastic 
fantastically clever book um and it uh, can it, it genuinely genuinely alters your perception of uh what happens in 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 high pro- not just combat because some of the things can be la- uh, drawn to other lessons can be drawn in other areas about the nature of how certain people react and who's doing what and then how people deal with what they did afterwards great great book well worth a read yeah okay so uh, i think we've we've uh covered everything that we need to cover and we're well over time yet again uh, this week so my thanks to Steve Withers. I thought everyone knew that God was a Scotsman. He is. Mark Hodgkinson. I'm terribly sorry about all this you know. Ed Sally. I always felt we tried to go a bridge too far and Mark Botwright. Both ends at once. Don't forget you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook, bookmark AV forums for latest reviews, news and video and of course leave us those 5 star ratings on iTunes uh, but only if you enjoyed the show. I'm Phil Hinton, thank you very much for listening and we'll see you again next week. (laughs) 